All right, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2 this morning. We are uh, continuing series Pastor Justin started last week, Discipleship 101. Uh, he kicked off that series last week, and I know his desire and our desire as we uh, talk through this idea of Discipleship 101, the basics, the foundations of what is discipleship, uh, is to just define what is a disciple, how can we as believers be better disciples of Christ, and then ultimately, how can we make disciples? And last week, uh, he defined what a disciple is. He used the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, which says that a disciple is someone who follows another person or another way of life and who submits himself to the discipline or teaching of that leader or way of life. And so as disciples of Christ, we are followers of Jesus as our leader. And the way of life that we're following is the way that he's commanded us to live according to his word. And so he defined that. He, of course, gave us uh, part one of the recipe of making disciples, how we can go about making disciples. Ingredient number one we looked at last week was born-again believers. In other words, before you can be a disciple of Christ and make other disciples, it starts with faith in Christ and regeneration. When you repent of your sin and put your faith in the death and resurrection of Christ to save you, to forgive you of your sins, it is then that you are born again, you are uh, you begin that journey of being a disciple. And so, uh, as he defined discipleship and looked at how to make disciples, I want to somewhat bridge the gap this morning. We're not talking about the recipe for making disciples. Pastor Justin will pick up with ingredients two and three uh, at a later time in our series. But I want to somewhat bridge the gap in what is a disciple and how can we make disciples by looking this morning at how can we as believers, as born-again uh, people who've trusted Christ by faith, how can we grow as disciples of Christ? So I want us to consider, continue under that umbrella of Discipleship 101 and considering how to grow as disciples of Christ. So how can we as believers be better disciples? You see, being born again is the beginning of that journey. It is not the completion of it. Being a disciple of Christ is not a a status that we reach or, you know, we've arrived, I'm a, like a, a Cub Scout or an Eagle Scout, I've done everything necessary, so now I'm, I'm, a, I'm an Eagle Scout, now and forever. Well, as a disciple, it's a continuing journey. You have that title as a believer of Christ, as a believer in Christ and a follower of Christ, but it is a journey that continues, a lifelong journey in the lives of believers. And so, how can we grow in this journey? How can we be better disciples and followers of Christ. And so this morning, as we look to the book of Acts and chapter 2, I want us to see that as we seek to grow as disciples of Christ, it is necessary that we do so in a community environment. And so you see the subtitle there, The Necessity of Community. The Winter Olympics are less than a month away, and my wife especially just loves any kind of Olympics, whether Summer Olympics, Winter Olympics, and so we get pretty excited uh, in our household when the Olympics come. And, of course, we just had the Summer Olympics last year because they were put on uh, delay for a whole year. And so it feels like we just went out from Summer Olympics into winter. But one of the most famous Winter Olympics, at least for American perspective of all time, was probably the 1980 Winter Olympic Games. There's actually been at least three movies made about some different events in the 1980 Winter Olympics. There's the movie Cool Runnings, if you've ever seen that, about the Jamaican bobsled team, Right. Feel the rhythm, feel the rhyme, get on up, it's bobsled time. Great movie. 
There's a more memorable or more, uh, more recent one called Eddie the Eagle about a British skier who uh, he didn't make his ski team, and, but his desire was to be an Olympian. And so he worked hard and actually learned to ski jump, and he wasn't real great at it as far as his competitors, but he tried really hard. And so both of those events actually took place in the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York. But arguably the most uh, notable event, the most recognizable event that took place at those games was the 1980 American-U.S. hockey team versus the Soviet Union, uh, Soviet Russians, their, their hockey team. And they met up in the semifinal matchup. And leading up to this, the Soviet Union had won five of the previous six gold medals in hockey. And I think they had won four in a row. So they were almost unbeatable when it came to hockey. In fact, just a few months before the Olympics started, they played the NHL All-Star team and beat them six to nothing. Uh, so they just mopped the floor with these All-Stars. In fact, prior to the Olympics, just a few days before the start of the Olympics, the U.S. hockey team played an exhibition match against the Soviet Union and lost 10-3. to So clearly the Soviets were the favorites to win the hockey gold again, and the U.S. didn't seem to stand much of a chance of beating them, uh, if even getting a medal uh, in their own regard. But as you may well know, the night of February 22nd, 1980, the U.S. hockey team did the unthinkable. And they beat the U.S. Soviet, or beat the, the Soviet Union 4-3 to three, uh, in the semifinal matchup. They went on to win gold, uh, and it's known as the miracle on ice. If you've ever heard the call, Al Michaels in his younger days, as the time is, is expiring, as the, Olympic, uh, the U.S. Olympic team is up 4-3, to three, you hear those famous words, do you believe in miracles? And the U.S., of course, won that game known as the Miracle on Ice. There's actually a movie that was made a few years back uh, by Disney called Miracle, and it chronicles the journey of the coach of the U.S. team that year. Herb Brooks was his name. Coach Brooks was the man who tried to prepare his team to beat the Soviets to win gold. And the movie chronicles how he went about putting this team together that would ultimately go on to beat the Soviet Union. And throughout the movie, what you see is that uh, Coach Brooks was not so much focused on individual talent and getting the best and brightest, most talented players on his team. Instead, it was about solidifying them as a team, getting them to work together for the common goal. In fact, his team was not made up of a bunch of NHL all-stars. Instead, it was a bunch of young college-age hockey guys, either former college about to go into the professional or still in college. In fact, the U.S. Olympic team that year was the youngest, had the youngest average age of any other Olympic team at only 21 years old. And so Herb Brooks took this group of young uh, college kids, many of whom were from rival hockey teams in college, and he brought them together to accomplish a common purpose, which was beating the Soviet Union and ultimately winning gold. At first, these players did not get along. They came from different backgrounds, different college hockey schools, many of whom had uh, played each other in college and, of course, had hard feelings because one team won and one team lost. And so he takes this group of players and solidifies them, helps them to become a team. There's one particular scene in the movie Miracle in which we see the team finally coming together. Throughout the movie, uh, part of him conditioning the team and getting them to uh, be strengthened was having them 
uh, run or skate what, what were called Herbies. They called them Herbies because Herb Brooks was the coach. And so, as you can imagine, if you've played basketball, it was very similar to a suicide. They would start at the end line, they'd go to the first line and back, the next line and back, till they had covered the entire ice. And so, even on skates, this would have been a pretty, been a pretty exhausting type of exercise. And so, Coach Brooks, throughout the movie, you see him having them do these drills over and over again. And prior to them doing a Herbie, what he would do is to try to get the team to know each other. He would have them say, say what their name was and where they played hockey. So one of them would speak up. They'd say his name. And they'd say, play the University of Minnesota. Then they'd do some Herbies in the next one. Okay, I'm such and such, and I'm from Boston University. And so the team would get to know each other in this way. Well, there's one particular scene in the movie where the team is pretty well getting along. Things are starting to click, but they're still not completely a team. In fact, they go uh, and play an exhibition match in another country, and they play a far inferior opponent and tie them, a team they should have wiped the floor with or wiped the ice with, you could say. And so they don't seem to be that bothered by it, but of course, C- Coach Brooks seeing their apathy as soon as the game's over and they're ready to go back to the uh, back to the clubhouse and, and get out of their gear. He says, nope, get on the blue line. We're going to run some of these Herbies. We're going to do some skating. If you're not going to work during the game, you're going to work now. And so he gets his team lined up. He begins, of course, yelling at them, telling them about how important it is they work hard. He goes over and over again with them how important it is that they not be as much concerned with the name on the back of the jersey as the name on the front of the jersey. And he just has them skate over and over and over again. Imagine these guys are already pretty exhausted from playing a full hockey game, and yet he's having them skate these Herbies back and forth, back and forth. Eventually, the, the rink manager turns the lights out because he's ready for them to leave, and of course the players are thinking, okay, finally this is over. But Herb doesn't let up. He says, get back on that line, we're going to keep going. So they keep skating over and over and over again. His assistant coach and the athletic trainer even plead with him, please stop. These guys are exhausted. They're going to get hurt. But he makes them do it over and over and over again. And then at one point, finally, just when you think they've had enough and you think it will never end even, you hear one of the players shout out his name. I think it was Micah Ruzioni. He says, Micah Ruzioni. And the coach says, who do you play for? And in the past where they would say their college hockey team, instead of saying, I play for the University of Minnesota, I play for the Boston University, what does he say? I play for the United States of America. And that's when Coach Brooks says, you guys are done. You've had enough. And you see the team come together. Why? There's a common team. There's a common goal. There's a common purpose. And they knew, they learned in that moment, if they hadn't learned at this point, that they couldn't do it alone. They couldn't just rely on their individual talent to beat the Soviet Union. They had to come together. They had to work together to have success. And in the same way, when it comes to the goal of the Christian life, which should be for us to grow as disciples of Christ, to be more obedient in following what God has commanded us, and of course, ultimately making disciples, we cannot do this alone. We need community. We need one another. God, in His grace, has given us community a community of like-minded believers so that as we strive together for a common goal, we too can have success. And so in Acts chapter 2, what we see this morning is the early church beautifully exemplified this community aspect of how they live together, how they 
strove together for a common purpose and growing as disciples and making disciples. And so before we look at this passage in Acts chapter 2, let me give you a brief context leading up to this passage. Of course, Acts comes right after the Gospels. The Gospels record Jesus' life and ministry, ultimately leading to him going to the cross, dying a substitutionary death for the sins of those who put their faith in Christ, rising again from the dead. And then after his resurrection, we know there's multiple opportunities he had, even with his disciples, leading up to his ascension. And just prior to his ascension, the end of Matthew, he gives that what we call Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of the nations, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, of course, Jesus promises to be with them. The book of Acts picks up from the end of the Gospels. And in the beginning of Acts chapter 1, what we see is uh, Jesus giving one final commission to them. It's very similar to Matthew 28 in Acts 1.8. He says, you're going to be witnesses to me. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. And after saying these words, Jesus ascends into heaven. And his disciples are left standing there in awe as Jesus, this one they followed for three and a half years, is now taken from them. And yet prior to that ascension, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit was going to come and was going to give them the power to fulfill the mission Uh, that he had given them. And so as they're standing there, two angels come and say, why are you standing here looking up to the sky, right? Jesus is going to come back. Go get busy about what he told you to do, which was to go and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so in chapter 2, what we see is the disciples go to Jerusalem. They're waiting for the promised Holy Spirit to empower them, to fulfill the commission that, that Jesus has given them. And on the day of Pentecost... What we see 50 days after the Passover is why it's called Pentecost. And on that day, the Holy Spirit comes and fills these believers. It gives them a supernatural power. And in the middle portion, uh, starting in verse 14, what we see is Peter, who's now filled with the Spirit, the same Peter who had denied Christ previously, is now boldly preaching to the masses in Jerusalem that they had crucified their Messiah. And we see their response. Look at verse 37 as he's preaching boldly in the power of the Spirit. Verse 37 of Acts 2, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. Everyone whom the Lord our God God calls to himself. So Peter's preaching and people are convicted. And they say, what should we do? Repent and believe in the gospel. Trust in what Jesus has done. And you'll be saved, right? And so we see the results of that in verse 41. It says, those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine 3,000 people coming to faith in Christ. 3,000 people doing what we talked about last week, being born again, trusting Christ by faith and experiencing regeneration. But the book of Acts doesn't stop here, right? It doesn't even continue with, well, they went this place and they made a bunch of converts here and they went this place and then eventually everybody was one to the gospel and that's the end. No. The disciples and the commission that Jesus gave them was not just to make converts, but to make disciples. And so 
The beginning of that is them putting their faith in Christ, but the journey of discipleship for them had just begun. And what we see in verses 42 through 47, what we're going to look at this morning, is how that discipleship process played out for these 3,000 first converts in the church age, we could say. And so look at this passage with me, Acts 2, beginning there in verse 42. So after these 3,000 souls come to faith, it says in verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Before we dive into this passage, let's ask the Lord to open our eyes to his word. Father, we do pray this morning that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us insight into your word, not just so we can better understand it, but so that we can better live it out, so we can be faithful to obey what your word calls us to do. So Lord, help us to have understanding, help us to put it into practice, and to do so for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we come to this passage, I very quickly want to point out Three ways uh, that we see, we see this example of the early church, three ways in which we see the necessity of community. First one is this in verses 42 to 43. Community is necessary in our relationship with God. There in verse 42 and 43, what you see is the early church. Again, they've trusted Christ by faith, but now the process of discipleship begins. And so you see these elements of community as they were living life together and the things they devoted themselves to. The first thing mentioned there is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, this is the Word of God. They had the Old Testament at this point. The New Testament canon had not yet been written. Uh, And so, basically, the apostles were the spokespeople for God. They were the ones to signify what God was saying. And that's why we see in the book of Acts miracles, things being done to show that Hey, they are speaking on behalf of God. The works that they do demonstrate that they're not speaking on their own own behalf. They're doing so for God. And so they're devoting themselves to what the apostles are teaching, to the word of God. We see this devotion suggests a regular practice of being attentive to God's word, seeking to understand it, but I think also seeking to live in obedience to it. Just as James says, don't be hearers of the word only, but be doers. So the community setting would would have encouraged this as well. As they're in smaller groups, as they're in a like-minded community of faith, those who maybe know the Old Testament scriptures better can take along some of those that don't and can explain what it means. It can show them from the Old Testament how it lines up with what the apostles are saying. So they would have read the words of the apostles. We know through the New Testament there's epistles that are written specifically from the Apostle Paul, from other apostles to specific churches. They would have received those words, they would have read them together, and then they would have sought to put them into practice and hold each other accountable to that. 
We see in Acts 17, as the gospel continues to go forth, as the apostles are proclaiming the gospel, in Acts 17, 11, speaking about the Bereans, it says that these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So in other words, in Berea, they were listening to what the apostles were saying, and they were looking to the Old Testament to see, does this line up with what God has said? And of course, they found it does line up. It, does, uh, it is God's word. And so they're looking, they're focusing on what God's word is saying and seeking to live it out in obedience and holding one another accountable to this. So a community of believers aids in this ability to better understand the scriptures, to encourage one another to obedience, and to hold one another accountable to obedience to his word. The second thing they were devoted to there in verse 42 we see is fellowship. So they're enjoying fellowship with one another. This fellowship is based on the common bond and the unity that they have in Christ. Uh, As the gospel goes forth, now here in Jerusalem, in Acts 2, this would have been pretty much all Jewish people who had put their faith in Christ. But as the gospel goes forth in the book of Acts, we know that it doesn't just reach Jewish people, that the gospel is for everyone, for Jew and Gentile alike. And so there were many early churches that would have been made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And as you can imagine, there would have been some conflict there. But they had a common unity. As different as Jews and Gentiles might have been, they were unified in Christ and in their faith in Him. And so they could enjoy this fellowship together. This isn't just a casual hanging out. We spent some time together. This is a fellowship that's meant to encourage one another, meant to direct each other to the Lord. And this fellowship with one another is ultimately tied to their fellowship with God. In 1 John 1, 3, John writing says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. When there are believers who experience fellowship with God, they naturally have fellowship with one another. And as they have fellowship with one another can strengthen their fellowship with God as well. And so this community, this fellowship in their community, would have strengthened their fellowship with God. The next thing you see there in verse 42 that they were devoted to is communion. It says to uh, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, which is likely a reference to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, as Jesus, just before His crucifixion, took the blood and the, or took the wine and the bread and said, this is my blood and this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so the early church would have participated in this as well. But this would have looked a little different in their context than it does for us. We just celebrated the Lord's table. Was it last week or the week before last week? And we do it corporately. But in this case, it would have been probably in the context of a meal together. They would have shared a meal together. And at some point in that meal, they would have broken bread, taken uh, the cup, and they would have remembered uh, Christ's sacrifice. And of course, this served at least three purposes in the life of the early church that it serves for us as well. It caused them to confess sin as they prepare their hearts to partake in a worthy manner. It caused them to remember and reflect on the gospel. And it would have caused them to look forward to the return of Christ. And so, These things in a community environment, partaking of the table together, would have 
encourage them and strengthen them. The next thing you see that they were devoted to was prayer in verse 42. So the breaking of bread and prayers. The early church was devoted to prayer. And I think this was more than just corporate prayer, just a Let's take some prayer requests and pray for some physical needs. If you've been a part of a smaller group setting, you know how much deeper prayer can go in a small setting as opposed to a corporate gathering. When you're with people you trust, that you've built a relationship with, that you have things in common with, you begin to open up and share deeper spiritual needs. So these would have gotten below, I believe, surface level to specific spiritual needs. And so the early church prayed In this way, the fellowship they enjoyed, that close-knit community, led to a deeper spiritual prayer life. And then you see in verse 43, they also experienced awe. Look at verse 43 again. It says, in awe, or some translations may say fear, it's a reverential fear it's speaking of, came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So as they see all that God is doing, as they talk about all that God is doing, there's a sense of reverence, there's a sense of awe, of worship in what God is doing. And so as they're in a community setting and they're discussing all that God is doing, this leads them to just encouragement from one another. Um, We know today that these miracles, these signs and wonders that God had for them in this day and age are maybe not as common in our context today, but nonetheless we can look at Uh, God's work and as we are in community with one another and as we talk about all that God is doing in our life and how he's provided for a need or how he's used us to lead someone to faith in Christ it should create in us in our community of faith a sense of awe and reverence worship of God and so we see that this community is necessary in our relationship with God but I want us to see in verses 44 to 46 that community is necessary in our relationship with believers Look at verse 44 and 45 again. <clears throat> it says they had all or it says all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So what you see here in these verses is the community of faith practicing mutual care for one another. They're caring for the needs of those in their faith community. Because of their common bond through Christ, it says they they had all things in common. They were together. They knew of the needs that one another had uh, in their community of faith. Acts 4 goes further and tells a little bit more about this. It says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, it's important I make this note as we look at Acts 2 and Acts 4, that we don't look at this and say, man, this sounds like communism, right? Some people who support communism would say, look, they took everything they had, they pitched it together, and then they passed it back out. That's not what we see directly happening here, right? Uh, Communism is when your goods are forcefully taken and then distributed back to everybody, right? This is not a forceful thing. This is a voluntary thing. The early church 
in their community of faith saw needs around them. And instead of clinging to their abundance, they said, we're going to give because there's those who are needy. And so they would give voluntarily to the apostles who would not just take everything and then, okay, here's your portion, here's your portion. They were giving to the apostles to then say, okay, here's a need and we have this resource, so we're going to use this to meet this specific need. So it's important we note the difference there between communism, as some would take these texts to support that, and see instead, no, this is mutual care. The early church is caring for those in their community of faith, and probably even those outside of their community of faith as they had opportunity. And so they're, because they're in a tight-knit community, because they're in these small groups, they're aware of the needs of one another, and so they voluntarily sacrifice what they have to provide for their, their needs. And we see uh, today this should be a great part of a community of faith, that we see the needs of one another. Instead of them stepping back and saying, well, somebody else will meet that need, they took what they had, and as they were able to meet the need, they provided for it. And so we should see that today as well, this level of mutual care. Maybe providing for a financial need as we have the ability or if someone has a physical need helping them or could be any sort of need as we see needs around us in our community of faith. And so we see the beauty of the early church, not just stepping back and thinking, well, God will take care of them, but instead taking action and voluntarily sacrificing to provide for the needs of one another. Now look at verse 46. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. I think we could call this life on life, right? It says, day by day, what are they doing? They're going to the temple together. Why are they going to the temple? Well, they didn't have a church building then, and of course the Old Covenant's still somewhat in place. So they're going there, they're hearing from uh, the Old Testament. There's probably some encouragement, some fellowship they enjoy there. It's a great opportunity to share the gospel, to evangelize with unbelieving Jews. But it doesn't stop there, right? They also, it says, day by day are breaking bread in their homes and receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. So they're not just meeting in a corporate setting, in a large-scale setting. They're also in each other's homes, spending life on life. I like the way the observation Tony Morita makes about this passage. He says, The church met both at the temple and house to house. One gathering was large and one was small. The believers had to have a large space to meet in since 3,000 people can't fit into someone's home. The temple area provided them a place for a large, formal, corporate gathering, while their homes were wonderful places for more informal, intimate gatherings. Many Christians today emphasize one, but not the other. The early church, though, devoted themselves to meeting in both. So we see this life-on-life discipleship, not just gathering together in one big setting and then going their way for the week and then coming back. Instead, they're together daily, regularly, rubbing shoulders, eating meals together. This type of discipleship of life-on-life is the exact type of discipleship that Jesus himself modeled to his disciples. Jesus would preach to the masses. He would not neglect the masses, but would preach to them. But what would he also do? He would take his 12 aside and say, you understand what I just said to everybody? Let me explain it. Let me break it down. He might take the three aside and say, you know, something more to them or take one of them aside and teach them. And so we see this modeled by Jesus. 
Uh, as we have the opportunity next week, we're going back to one corporate service and we're going to have a discipleship class at 9 a.m. Uh, what I'm planning on teaching in that 9 a.m. class is to examine just what we talked about, Jesus' model of discipleship. How did he go about uh, reaching the world with the gospel? Uh, what were his methods? And so we're going to go through an old book called The Master Plan of Evangelism and how Jesus uh, went about and his methods of making disciples. So that's a shameless plug for next week at 9 a.m. If you want to jump into that, it'll be a good time of discussion, conversation, looking at that. But we see this modeled, this life-on-life discipleship modeled by Jesus and modeled here by the early church, which is essential. It's essential that we find other believers that we can live life with, that we can rub shoulders with on a regular basis, enjoy fellowship, enjoy encouragement as we encourage them and they encourage us. We've got to have those in our sphere of daily life that can encourage us and help us. So community is necessary for both our relationship with God and believers. But lastly, I want us to see in verse 47, community is necessary in our reach of unbelievers. You see this community of the early church and the fruit of that we see in verse 47. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As they had this community this common bond in Christ, as they loved one another, as they cared for one another, what happened? It was contagious. They had opportunity to share the gospel and reach others. And as unbelievers looked in and saw the way they cared for one another, the way, the way they loved one another, it opened the door for them to be able to share the gospel. Jesus said it this way, By this, all people will know that you are my, my disciples, if you have love for one another. When unbelievers see believers loving one another, being united, even though they may be from completely different backgrounds, united in their faith in Christ in pursuit of Him, it's a testimony to them. It opens the door to be able to share the gospel of why we're different, why we have that community, why we care for one another and even those outside of our faith community. And so we see that community is necessary if we want to reach unbelievers. If we're not united, if we're divided, if we're hypocritical, that's the biggest uh, deterrent to people coming to the gospel. But when we were united and we were caring for one another, that opens the door for us to share. And so we've seen how the community of the early church experience uh, was necessary as they sought to grow as disciples uh, when it came to their relationship with God, their relationship with, with believers, and their reach of unbelievers. But this aspect of community was not just for the early church. This idea of community is for us today as well. We need to be in a community of believers who can encourage us, who can stir us to love and good works. And so as we close and as I think about a way to conclude and to apply this, I want to ask this question. I want you to answer this question in your mind. Are you plugged in to a community of faith? Are you plugged into a community of faith? Now, some of you are probably saying, well, yeah, I'm here, right? This is the community of faith. I'm here, and so by default, I'm part of a community of faith. Well, notice I didn't ask, do you go to church? Because that's a very different question than are you plugged into a community of faith? If all you do is show up to a corporate gathering, sit in the pew, hear someone teach the Word of God, have some casual chit-chat with other people. How was your week? 
Did your sports team win? How, what's the weather like this week? Very casual, surface-level conversation. And then you go your way, and you're gone all week, and you come back the next week, and you do that time and time again. Let me tell you, that's not a community being plugged into a community that God desires for you. That's not the way God would desire you to be plugged in and growing as a disciple. In that way, you're basically being alone. You're being on your own trying to go about discipleship without that community that God's designed us to be a part of. And so, let me say this. <clears throat> if that's you, if all you do is just show up each week and you're more of a consumer, it's just about what you can get instead of what you can give, let me encourage you with a very specific application. So, a lot of times when we get up here and try to take the Word of God and give applications, sometimes they're very general applications, right? Love one another. Okay, now go out and figure out how to do that. Well, today's application is going to be very specific, okay? And it's this. If you find yourself not plugged into a community of faith, here's the application. Get plugged into a growth group. Get plugged into a growth group. Now, We've led all this up, and you're probably thinking, well, now you've kind of unveiled it. This was your whole purpose all along. Well, yeah, it was in a sense that we see it in Scripture. We see this aspect of community, and we see this fleshed out through growth groups in a tremendous way. Growth groups are a tremendous facilitator of community as they are a small, informal setting that are typically meets in someone's home. And let me very quickly show how these growth groups accomplish what we see here in the early church. The early church was focused on teaching. In our growth groups, what we do is we take the sermon text and uh, the sermon theme from the previous Sunday, and there's questions that we dive into so that we can have conversation and get deeper into God's Word. So this is an opportunity when you come to a sermon and you hear something, you go, I don't have a clue what he's talking about. Growth groups are a great way to say, well, what did he mean? What does this mean? Or what, what did he mean when he said this? It's a great opportunity not just to experience monologue, someone teaching you, but to have dialogue, to ask questions, to dive deeper. And so we see this community aspect of teaching in our growth groups. There's fellowship, just like the early church had fellowship. There's fellowship that takes place when you develop these close-knit relationships. You're able to get beyond just the how did your sports team do this week to how are you doing in your walk with the Lord? How how can I pray for you in a spiritual way? There may not be communion in the sense that we're partaking of the cup and the bread, but there are meals together, right? And some of the growth groups, the meals are actually pretty good, right? So there's food that takes place and fellowship around that. There's prayer that takes place. And again, it's a deeper level than just, hey, pray for my grandma's hip. And those are things we should pray for, but it gets deeper than that. And then just surface level, easy things to pray for. It gets to, hey, pray. I'm, I'm really struggling in this way this week. Pray for me. Prayer gets deeper as we have that vulnerability and accountability with one another. There's awe that should take place and, and takes place in these growth groups. As we build these relationships with one another and we hear what God is doing in one another's life, what is it stirring us? Wow, God is amazing how he's working in this. We just prayed specifically for this need and look how he's provided in this way. Or we've been praying for this person, you know, that you've been sharing the gospel with and now they've come to faith in Christ. There's a level of awe that takes place. There's mutual care in our growth groups as we're more aware of our needs for one another, needs that may go unnoticed in a big setting, 
because you're in a tight-knit community, you know, hey, this person has this need. How can we go about meeting this need, providing? There's times where growth groups provide meals for those who are sick or who've had surgery or, uh, you know, have had a child, whatever it may be. There's a level of mutual care, meeting financial needs, physical needs, any other types of needs for one another. There's life on life because many times when you develop those relationships in that small group setting, it doesn't stay on that week of the night that you meet together. It expands throughout the week, right? Hey, had a great time of fellowship. Let's get together for lunch on Thursday. So there's life on life. There's rubbing shoulders. There's opportunity for those who are older and more mature in the group to minister, to disciple those who are younger. And there's outreach that should take place in our growth groups. So our groups are in different communities and are seeking to reach uh, others in that community and others see the love and care they have for one another, it can open the door for the gospel. There's times where maybe an unbelieving friend or coworker or spouse feels more comfortable coming to a growth group than coming to a church setting. And they get to see the love and care and the unity that the group has. And so we see really all these elements that we see in Acts 4. 2, 42 to 47, fleshed out in growth groups. So I challenge you today, if you're in a growth group, I think you see the benefits and the blessings of living life in community and growing as a disciple of Christ. But if you're not in a growth group, let me encourage you, get plugged into one. Now, am I suggesting that you cannot live in community apart from being part of a growth group? I'm not saying that, right? Some of you may not be in a formal growth group, but you have a close-knit community of believers that encourage you, that you're regularly a part of. And so I'm not trying to suggest that this is black and white. If you're not in a growth group, you're disobeying Scripture. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying is every day as our church gets larger and larger in numbers, it becomes harder and harder to be part of an intimate community that can hold you accountable, that can encourage you the way you need. And it becomes easier and easier to just slip in, sit passively by, just be a consumer and not be part of a community that you can be encouraging, engaged with, serving. And so let me challenge you to think about whether or not the Lord would have you plug in uh, to a growth group and experience the community that he desires for you to experience as you grow as a disciple and a follower of Christ. If we want to reach our full potential as disciples, as followers of Christ, we cannot do it alone. Just like the Olympic team, if they had gone into that Olympics, each focused on their own way of playing, they would have lost uh, big time. But instead, they came together. They realized they couldn't do it alone, so they relied on one another. Same is true. If we want to reach our full potential as disciples of Christ, we have to realize we can't do it alone. Satan is a roaring lion going about seeking whom he he may devour. And if we're isolated by ourselves, then we are an easy target for the enemy. But when we are together, when we are unified, when we are encouraging one another, praying for one another, being devoted to teaching, fellowshipping, reaching out, having that mutual care and life on life, we can protect one another from the enemy and strengthen one another in our pursuit of Christ. And so I encourage you today, do you see the necessity of community? Do you see the importance of God's design for community in the life of a believer? I pray you do. And just this way of application as well, if you're not in a growth group, 
check with me, fill out a connection card, check with Pastor Justin. If you know someone that's in a growth group, ask them. If you're in a growth group and you know someone that's not, invite them to your growth group. Say, hey, come check it out. Feel free to check out some different growth groups, right? Some of the food might be good in some, and you might say, this is the one I want to be in. <laughs> might not be good in others. You might say, I'm not going to be in that growth group, right? Try them out. Find a group that you think you can be encouraged by. But I challenge you to, to pursue that if the Lord would lead you to do it. So no matter what you, where the Lord may lead you, I pray you see the importance and the necessity of community in the life of a believer. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of the early church and how you, uh, of course, led them to faith in Christ and led them through this process of being discipled. Um, Not that they would be isolated and on their own, but that they had this community atmosphere and they devoted themselves to your word and to encouragement, fellowship and prayer and serving one another. So God, I pray today you would help us to take your word, to apply it to our specific situations, to know how we can be plugged into a community and serving one another, helping one another, encouraging one another, and of course, reaping the benefits of that as we seek to walk with you, as we seek to grow as disciples. So challenge our hearts, Lord. We know your commission is still for us to go and make disciples, but before we can do that, Lord, help us to be the disciples that you would desire us to be so that we can reproduce ourselves uh, and make other disciples who will worship you. And Lord, we'll give you all the praise as you work in us and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name.